Welcome to Pitch Deck, the podcast where startup founders pitch their business to investor angels or established mentors. We provide constructive feedback on both the business and the pitch itself. I'm your host, Nick Telson, and let's jump straight into the pitch studio and meet today's guests. So I'm delighted to welcome Tom Savage, who's sitting alongside me today, who first and foremost is an award-winning entrepreneur. He's started a social enterprise called Blue Ventures, which I believe was lauded by none other than Sir David Attenborough. He also set up Holy, which is a new type of search engine, and also Brilliant Africa, which is a tour operator highlighting the splendor of Africa. I've dug a bit deeper on Tom, and he often describes himself as a founder, not a CEO, meaning that he thinks he's good at the founder part, but doesn't really enjoy the CEO bit and believes founders should be aware of their own capabilities when it comes to going all the way with their businesses, which I think is a very interesting take. And with that in mind, he actually now runs an executive search business called Savage and Hall, which helps founders find their replacements once they need a CEO or experienced operator. He also does have a small angel portfolio, including the likes of Monzo and Fatmap. And I also personally want to recommend you listen to his brilliant TEDx talk too. So I'd love to welcome you, Tom, to the podcast. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for that intro. It's quite a, a long intro, which is good. <laughs> got lots going on. You've got a very long, interesting past. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes as entrepreneurs, you know, we see opportunities if we want to do multiple things in parallel. So maybe it's just being a distracted kind of individual that has resulted in me doing lots of things. <laughs> Before we actually dive into the pitch studio and, and hear today's pitch, I just want to ask you a couple of questions. So what's your take on the entrepreneurial world sort of as we hopefully come out of the coronavirus era? Um, do you think there's going to be sudden changes in focuses of types of company that come to the fore? Yeah, I think that um, I think that uh, I remember it. At university, we learned about creative destruction, which is this idea that when things are difficult, creation happens. Um, so yes, I think that there will be, uh, hopefully, a number of new companies that are born as a result of the difficult times that we have just encountered. I do think the world will return to normal. Um, I don't think there'll be seismic changes in the way we live. But I do think that quite often the best and most interesting companies are born during very difficult times. So I'm optimistic about what we'll see next. Yeah, I totally agree. We actually launched Design My Night uh, just at the start of the, the financial crash in 2008, 2009. And actually, I think financial tougher times and maybe even access to less funds really focuses startups' minds to be a bit more bootstrapped and a bit more cash savvy, do you think? Mm. Well, maybe it's time to start Design My Lockdown, um, which could be your new iteration. Yeah, well, we did buy pretty much every URL you can think of when we started. But I think having sold the Design My Night, we thought, okay, we'll we'll get out of the Design My Franchise now as well. and, And when we're looking at investments, you know, for you, what is very important when you look at a pitch deck you know what what really sings to you when you see a great pitch deck i think there's a combination of different elements but for me it would probably be 
down to the the guru that is Paul Graham because he's just seen so many more than me. So I defer to his wisdom. And I think one of the primary pieces would be a founder that is relentlessly resourceful. So a pitch deck doesn't matter too much if you've got someone behind it that is relentlessly resourceful. So I kind of think that most companies will go through many problems. You know, coronavirus will have thrown all sorts of challenges at founders. And the ones that are most relentlessly resourceful will be the ones that will be able to move and shape and pivot and and change things on the basis of the world in front of them. So I think that that's the primary thing I would look for. Yeah, I think that's a really great point, being founder focused as well. What's like a one pet hate that if you if you look at a pitch deck and you think, oh, this this is bugging me? <laughs> um, can I can I add a couple of bits of advice because I get asked for yeah, pitch go on, all the time. for a few. <laughs> so I mean, first up is what's your pitch deck for? So I see pitch decks where somebody's trying to tell the person reading everything, and I think most pitch decks are trying to get a meeting with someone. So keep it short, sweet, and elusive, such that the person wants to pick up the phone and or have a face-to-face and say, tell me more about the company. I've seen so many pitch decks that each slide takes me about three or four minutes to read through, and I need to have a deeper understanding of what's happening in order to understand it. So my favorite pitch decks are maybe 10 to 20 slides long and might only include a couple of sentences on each slide. And then you can really get a sense of what's going on. They should tell a story. The detail can come later. Yeah, I totally agree. And I don't know if you're like me, but actually when I get a pitch deck, I actually just skim it at the start. And, I, you know, is, is something jumping out of jumping out at me to make me want to dig a bit deeper into the pitch deck itself, even before setting up a call? Because exactly. we get so many, you're just sort of skimming the highlights and seeing if there's something that's sort of piquing your interest. And if you've got pages that are really dense, that doesn't enable you to skim. And remember that most good investors will be seeing lots of decks. And so if your yeah. deck is not skimmable, it might not even be read. 100%, 100%. So talking about pitch decks, without further ado, let's both head into the pitch studio and meet today's startup founder, Jamal, from Wayfair. So hi, Jamal, how are you doing? Hey, Nick, Tom, I'm great. Yeah, a bit sleepless, but um, that's just the life of a founder, isn't it? So, <laughs> but other than that, I'm pretty good. Yeah. Great. Great to have you on board. Looking forward to hear your pitch. So let's, let's crack straight on with it. So, uh, as we all know, or hopefully maybe know, <laughs> traveling is a nightmare. And it starts off something like this. So you've got a group of friends at a bar uh, and late into the evening, someone gets this bright idea that sounds something like, oh my God, we should go to Dubai for my birthday. And of course, everyone shouts yes, because there's absolutely no bad ideas after four Negronis and a Jägerbomb. <laughs> then one diligent person takes all this very seriously. Uh, I'm going to call him Duncan because that sounds like a man that likes a good spreadsheet. And Duncan starts a group chat a few days later, presents the group with tables full of proposed dates and flights, uh, links to swanky Airbnbs, and a list of all the must-visit design district hotspots. It's at that exact moment that four of the 15 people drop out because they just can't afford it. And everyone who's been on a group trip can attest that the first dropouts always happen the moment a spreadsheet appears. So 
Duncan goes away, finds new Airbnbs to fit this adjusted budget for 11 people. There is nonstop furious group chats for months, trying to hash out all the details. Uh, one person with 15 brand new ideas every minute. And you've got an annoying guy like me that chimes in every few days to say, sounds good, which really just means I muted the group chat weeks ago, uh, but I'm still alive. So Duncan's growing gray, chasing people around for money, asking people if they've bought their tickets yet. He books Airbnb on a prayer that nobody else will drop out. <laughs> and then the big day arrives that everybody's at the airport getting on the plane, except Sasha, who gets pulled aside and gets told that she cannot get on the plane because her passport expires in two months. And there's whole laws around this. Sasha says, well, why didn't anybody tell me this when I booked? And the gate agent just shrugs. <laughs> uh, Sasha won't get her money back for that either. And that's the state of travel, pre-Covidian times. If you're lucky, this may all sound like very far-fetched, but it's actually far more common than you think. It happens every day. And I can attest to that because all those and worse have at some point happened to me. Now, obviously, that's a group travel scenario, but even trying to organize a trip for your family or just going solo uh, is no less aggravating. In fact, people spend 45 days researching before they even book a trip. And the reason why is because at the moment you first picture that trip in your mind, it's perfect. Statistically speaking, that's also the happiest you're going to be throughout the entire travel process. So you really want to try and preserve that image that you have and carry it through to reality. But there's so much information. There's so many apps and websites that you're going to have to engage with at all these different stages of the process. And it's easy to feel like at some point you're going to misstep. And if you travel enough, there's a 100% chance that you will. <laughs> and that's the problem that Wayfair is solving. We're building an app that works against all those elements that are conspiring to ruin your vision of the perfect trip. The vision for Wayfair is to be the one-stop shop to make the entire travel process effortless. It's travel unraveled, we say. So now you've got the big picture of where we're going and the plane's out in the sky, but let's take that plane right back to the gate because our starting point is actually a lot humbler. Uh, I mentioned that the happiest point in the travel process is the idea stage. Uh, so can you guess what the most upsetting stage of the process is? Uh, paying? <laughs> it's like you looked in the back of the book, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> so for the majority of people, um, Having to pay for flights outright just leaves us suffering pot noodles till payday. So Wayfair's starting point is layaway for airfare. Layaway is an American payment method. Uh, it's also very popular in Australia, New Zealand. Uh, the closest thing you have to it here in the UK is something like a Christmas club, which is close but no cigar. But the general gist is that it's credit-free monthly payments for flights. And the way it works is Wayfarers find the flight that they want in our app. We're connected to every airline seat inventory, so there's no limitations on what you can book. Next, they pay a 10 to 15% booking fee to lock in the cost, and that's a flat fee based on ticket price. Then we collect the rest in affordable monthly payments until departure. On the last payment, we release the boarding pass in their app automatically so they can slay their bucket list and have a great time. <laughs> so this is distinctly different from our competitors in that we're not operating on credit terms. So the ticket has to be paid for before departure. Otherwise, we cancel the ticket and refund the customer their money. But most leisure travelers aren't looking to fly immediately, so that's not a problem. And really, this first step in our journey is about booking the unbookable. Companies like Fly Now, Pay Later are great. They have their place, 
but credit isn't a favorite option for millennials. So in the debt-heavy US, only 15% of millennials are comfortable carrying a balance on credit cards. A 15% pay in full monthly or they only use credit for emergencies. And 70% do not have a credit card at all. But millennials value travel over buying a house. And before COVID, uh, millennials were expected to account for just under half of all the global bookings by 2023, uh, which is about 2.3 billion flights. Another use case for booking the unbookable here is expats like me who need to travel home for things like weddings, holidays, but can't access credit in their host countries. So by zooming in on this particular pain point of the travel process and having a well-defined target audience, we start innovating a really unique booking experience and then working our way outward from booking to deliver some other really exciting innovations in other stages of the travel process. A simple one is group booking and planning. Millennials regularly travel in groups, but for airlines, the process is painfully manual, which is why in 2020, you still cannot book group trips online. So we built tools that allow everyone in the group to organize plans in real time, find consensus quickly, and each individual can pay either outright or they can pay on layaway with the press of a button. No more spreadsheets and no more dropouts. Beyond that, we've got plans for other things that are important to our audience, like carbon neutralization and things that aren't even on their radar, like what do you do with all the extra air miles you accumulate? Or how do you keep the gate from closing when you're running a few seconds behind? And then we've got some really other cool ideas around AI, but that's where we get into the colorful ideas that uh, my co-founders told me I'm not allowed to talk about too publicly just yet. <laughs> so the great thing is that some of these problems are being solved by other startups, but they mainly exist to make the supply chain more efficient, not to improve the customer experience. And that's really part and parcel for travel tech because most travel startups don't have an exciting enough proposition to go direct to consumers and to monetize. So our vision is about painstakingly integrating with all these invisible systems to make the travel customer experience painless. So looking at our team inward, uh, our tech lead and Jetscape navigator is Neil Chalk, uh, who's spent the last 15 years building platforms for airlines. Our head of design, Sunny Sue, dubbed Rococo of Arrivals, uh, leads his own design studio and consulted on design for Coca-Cola and LG. Andy Diggle is our head of finance and runway revivalist coming from Sage, Apple, and card payment processing uh, background. We have two non-exec directors, uh, Neil Lewis, the turbine tangoist, who's built two multi-million pound ventures, and Greg Fairweather, who doesn't have a name yet, but has built and led Silicon Valley fintechs as chief of people. And that leaves me, uh, Jamal Worms-Mondesir. I'm the founder and diva of Departures with a background in operations from Monzo and Apple. And I started all this because I missed my brother's wedding back in Puerto Rico a few years ago. In fact, in my 11 years in the UK, I have missed a lot of things. <laughs> so the wedding was really a breaking point and I started really questioning the problem. Uh, and the more we dug into it, we found that there wasn't really an answer. And there was no reason why there wasn't a solution. So Andy and I got our credit cards out. We started paying for other people's flights to see if this idea would work. And it did. Uh, but we ran out of credit cards. So recently, we launched our public waiting list. Uh, and our signups doubled within the first week. Uh, and now we're raising our first round of seed funding uh, for platform and booking engine development, market awareness, making key hires, and funding our first year of inventory. 
Excellent. Thank you very much for that. Bang on time as well. Um, I know it's not easy to pitch audio. <laughs> very, it's a new challenge for everyone on this podcast. Um, <laughs> before we um, actually dive into the business itself, I actually just want to ask you a few generalist questions, which which you know might help other founders out there as well who are on a similar startup journey. So firstly, you said you had that sort of aha moment when you missed the wedding. How did that generate from an aha moment to I think there's a problem we can solve to actually this is the problem we want to solve and I think it's a goer? Yeah. So the wedding for me, um, like I said, that was actually the third wedding I'd missed and I'd missed plenty of Christmases before that. Uh, but the wedding was uh, the big problem with that the wedding created was that I was meant to be the best man at my brother's wedding. So there wasn't just a responsibility to visit there was also an obligation and travel was always really something that I wanted to do and I started looking into how are you know lots all these people going out and having these really Instagram worthy holidays all the time uh, how are they paying for it and the answers I found were actually really surprising so it's not what you think some people are just very very diligent about uh, saving up you also have people who will, uh, when, especially when you're backpacking, will work like odd jobs uh, over their travels. And the other thing was, oh, the, my favorite one was people who are like aggressive about taking advantage of discounts, taking advantage of frequent flyer miles, and they've got like whole systems set up. But the average person really just isn't doing anything. The average person isn't traveling as much as they want to either. And when I really understood that, it made me think about, it made me start looking into what other options are there besides credit cards. And we found one, <laughs> and it's a good one. It's very similar to what we do, um, but for some reason, there's a lot of things that we just thought weren't great about what they were doing. Uh, and so I just kind of drew up a pitch deck one day and said, well, I would do it better this way and this way and this way. And and that's kind of how we got here. And before you committed to actually, you know, really going on this journey, um, and, and I, I presume leaving your, your job, what research did you do? What, you know, what did you try and do? I always say you should try and dissuade yourself that it's a good idea before committing. <laughs> what measures did you take? So actually, I sat on this idea for a year uh, before I picked it up again. So I think even before my brother's wedding, I knew about a, this company that does very that's very similar to what we do. That pitch deck I mentioned, I put it all together, and I remember looking at it and thinking, I do not know anything about finance. I don't know anything about travel. What business do I have in <laughs> doing a, a travel startup with embedded finance? So. I put it away and it was more of a personal journey uh, that got me here. And that's probably a story for a different podcast, but I uh, went through a little bit of a depressive state. And after I kind of came out the other end of it, I reflected on why it had all happened. And I realized travel was such a big part of that for me. Being outside of the UK for, sorry, being outside the US for probably, I think, eight or nine years at that point, um, and realizing that I just wasn't really where I wanted to be as a person really made me kind of 
pull out this pitch deck and say, well, I've already got this travel idea and maybe that's something I should do. And I kind of just dug back into the problem in terms of trying to dissuade myself uh, because I felt like there must be a reason why it doesn't exist. And I challenged everything. I I really dug into the the airline industry and the travel industry, how it all works. And the answers weren't immediately obvious. Um, a lot of it was just from all the learning I'd accumulated and pieced together. And I kind of figured out why it doesn't exist. And it's not really, it can't exist. It's just that nobody wanted to try it. So, so here we are. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, thanks for all of those answers. And without further ado, let's actually um, have a critique now of the business and the pitch itself. So I'm going to bring in Tom, uh, who's just going to start the questions off. Hey, Jamal. Hey, Tom. How you Happy doing? to hear from you. <laughs> yeah, I'm likewise. excited for this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, thanks very much for that pitch. Uh, I, I run a travel business uh, as one of the pieces that I have done. So I've, I've hopefully got That's a few awesome. insights I can share. <laughs> but maybe I'd, I'd like to look at a few different kind of areas of questioning. The first one was just the, the example of missing your brother's wedding um, as yeah. the best man. What I didn't quite understand is how your solution would solve that problem. So let me put that question another way. If you, mm-hmm. if you buy hand could not solve the issue of getting on a flight. Um, how does your solution, how would it have solved that problem for you? So at the time that my brother told me about the wedding, uh, to the time they got married, I think I had about a six month window to figure out how I was going to get home. The other thing that you have to remember is the wedding, I think this wedding was in March and I would have been also traveling home that year for Christmas in December. So the, he, he told me in October, the wedding was in March. So it wasn't just the one trip I had to buy, it was two trips I had to buy. And these are both sort of transatlantic. Uh, you've got to get two flights, making it more expensive. So for me, um, it's not that I couldn't afford the flight. I mean, I would, have, I, I would have still had a few hundred pounds left over for the month. But that would have been all my bills, all my groceries and everything else that I have to kind of squeeze into just a few hundred pounds. So this would have actually let me say, right, take that 800 pounds and divide it up into six payments so that by the time I'm actually going to Puerto Rico, it's already paid off and I'm not having to pay it outright. I did have two credit cards actually at the time that I was was sent the invite, but I don't like using credit. And at the same time, I thought this was a me problem. I did not realize at the time until I really dug into it that actually most millennials do not like using credit cards. And it is mainly a symptom of the financial crash uh, from 2008 and so much of so many of us having so much student loan debt. And and am I right in thinking that your platform would split the cost, but you still pay for the full flight before you you get on it? So to ask the question in another way, what was to stop you just putting 200 quid a month for four months and still booking a ticket two months before your brother's wedding? So is this a question of is the what would have stopped the user from just saving for the the ticket? Yeah, so this is your brother's wedding and you were best man. Uh, I imagine it was pretty important. And I'm trying to understand this kind of hair on fire problem that you had. 
Um, what was to stop you just saving that money over four months and buying the ticket two months before you went? Yeah, so uh, you know the very real problem is that saving is difficult. It, it is very, it's difficult. It's always a case of you know I can I could possibly put away money for this in a few over the next few months, but I will probably see something that I want before then and decide to buy that instead. So this kind of gives people a structured way of doing it. Um, but we're not a saving product. So in this case, you, you are buying the ticket at, you're buying the ticket at the price on that day. And that's probably one of the biggest things for travel because you, you know, if that, if you see a flight for, you know, 400 pounds today and you don't have 400 pounds today, by the time you save up that 400 pounds, uh, the ticket's gone up to 600. So you're always trying to chase a moving target. So a big, a big part of the proposition is that you're locking in the cost today, but without having to pay all of that money outright. Okay, thanks, Jamal. Um, how long have you been running the company for? And can you give me um, a quick indication of progress to date? Yeah, um, I would say roughly, I started this in January 2018, I want to say. Uh, that was kind of when I was just starting to do some customer customer feedback and trying to really scope out the idea, not feedback, more interviews and research. So speaking with people, uh, especially a lot of expats, a lot of millennials, trying to understand what their experiences were in the travel process. Uh, in March of that year, I moved to onto NatWest Fintech Accelerator, which was very exciting because I was the only part-time founder uh, that's ever been accepted onto that. We formally founded the company in June 2018, so just, over, just two years ago. And in later in 2018 is when we started our first customer trials. Uh, that's when we got our credit cards out and started flying people around to see uh, how it would all work. So we carried that on over 2000, over, yeah, for all of 2019. And we are realizing that we kind of were going to run out of credit cards. Uh, we decided that we'd start looking for investment. And we, a big part of this was our waiting list. So we did this originally as a landing page, and we've recently pushed that as a app to incentivize people to sign up. And like I said, we start, we pushed that only about just over two weeks ago. It's been just over, I would say, a week. And our signups from the waiting list actually doubled in the first week. Um, and we've not even done like a very big marketing push. And that's a big, probably one of the most interesting things is Neither the landing page nor the referral app have had a big marketing push just yet. So all of this has been through just organic traffic. And it's something like 16 countries uh, around the world represented on that list, which is very interesting. <laughs> and when you're saying doubled, et cetera, et cetera, what numbers are we talking that you have interests? We, we started with about 300 from the original landing page, and we're about at 600 now in the referral app. And I don't know if you agree with me, Tom. Is so a year and a half, let's say, to get to sort of this this stage of still pre-product or pre-users, let's say, is that just because it's it's a very big tech build, or that feels quite slow to me? Yeah, I would say it's definitely slower than I've wanted to, but it is a very big tech build because the booking engine in itself needs to be built. And we are a team of part-time founders when we started this. So we're really trying to be really resourceful about how we 
get to the next stage with the time and the resources that we have. Jamal, what have you built so far of the platform? Yeah, so the what we first built was a sort of Stripe payment key. So we did all the actual bookings manually, um, but we had a payment platform for people to go on to and do the payment, make monthly payments, pay through Apple Pay and Google Pay and all that. And then the next stage was the referral app. So, uh, so the referral app is what and is it built already? The referral app's built. Yeah, it's everywhere in the app stores already. The referral app is, if you remember Monzo's very first app, it was a way to kind of excite people about the brand, tell them what Monzo was doing and a way for them to jump up the waiting list by, by telling their friends about it. So we've duplicated that um, and added some really cool other features into there that we hope will kind of extend over the next few months while we're in this sort of investment hunting period. <laughs> Sure. So you mentioned integrations. Yeah. Have you started with any of these integrations with regards to being able to book tickets? No, we haven't. But booking tickets is a actually requires a lot more than just the technological integrations. There's also things that we need to kind of get in order, like making like having a consolidator to book tickets on our behalf, and then the back office for that as well. Uh, and then you kind of have to make sure that you've got sort of protections around uh, if you're using the consolidators at all license and whatnot. So it's more than just the technological side of things with that. So, and, and, and you mentioned making money. What are your current yeah. plans on making money? And can you just dig into the, the details of the, the kind of commission rates that you'll be making or the booking fees? I think you mentioned 10 to 15% in your intro. Yeah, so we'll start with the uh, 10 to 15% booking fee that the customer pays. Is that on top of the, um, the normal ticket fee? Yeah, that, so that's on top of the ticket cost. If the user is paying within four months, they get 10%. Uh, if it's over eight months, it is 15%. And if it's in the middle, it's 12.5. So that's how we're going to start testing the, the monthly payments idea. Somebody who's splitting their payments over a, a let's say, four-month period, like you did before your wedding, will be paying fifteen percent, or what, is, between ten and fifteen percent more than they would otherwise. So for that one, it was uh, six months, so it would be twelve point five. Okay. So you say you've got six hundred subscribers to the, yeah. the, the waiting list. Uh, so very roughly, what what do you think that looks like in terms of revenue for those six hundred? To get to the next stage, uh, we're not necessarily booking all 600 of those people. We are sort of strategically picking out the people who we think will be most likely to have something to book immediately. So we're pulling out people like expats, international students, people who have a ticket for a cancel, uh, an event that was canceled due to coronavirus because we need to start testing the platform build and you know, challenging some of these assumptions that we're making. Uh, so those people will be the people that we pull out first to get that feedback. In terms of revenue, um, we're expecting we kind of average around £750 per ticket and around a six-month payment. So that would be about 824 I'm not saying the math correctly, uh, £824 for, for the full thing and about £74 of revenue. Uh, sorry, £74 of profit, sorry. <laughs> Jamal, in your um, customer interviews and so on, uh, yeah. how do you know for sure that people will pay extra just to split their payments if they are very cash constrained anyhow? Yeah, so I think there's a, there's, there's a 
the assumption sometimes when we talk about this that people are not that people don't have the cash it's not that they don't have the cash it's that they would it would be difficult for them to kind of pay all that cash outright uh when we first did our customer interviews we didn't tell anybody what we were doing we very much just kind of asked them questions about their experience traveling uh especially when it came to speaking with other expats uh i would ask them things about how often they got to go home if they had any troubles and frustrations uh, but we never we never led them into an idea of what we were doing so we were trying to find the really dig into like the the basic the base of the problem and and that's a great way to do customer interviews but what i'm trying to understand here is how do you know for sure that you're building stuff that people want on how do you know for sure that the solution that you're proposing is a hair on fire problem for people and by hair on fire they use that analogy because it means if your hair's on fire you will do anything to put it out yeah um good question i'd like to say i've got a ready to <laughs> i've got a ready to sort of pull out my uh, pocket answer there i think our initial feedback has been great from the customer trials that we did when we actually paid for people to go away most of them people were even repeat customers after that did you split their payments over a period of months and did you charge them an additional 10 to 15%? Yes, we did. And yes, everybody paid over over several months. In fact, the really interesting uh, answer uh, that I've got to your question is, so while we were doing this off of our own credit cards, we were had to be very sort of spend thrift about how we were using them um, mind you that some people would still be in repayments when and we would get a lot of people regularly asking us if we could book a trip for them and so we actually turned away about six people for every one person that we booked uh, i think that's an interesting answer to your question how many people went through this process of, of your booking for them in total 15 Okay. And and as I said, so you split the payments over months, but you also charge them an additional 10 to 15% on top of their original fee. Yes. Okay. And they were they were happy with that. Yeah. Um, so it, it's the fact that it's actually a lot more understandable than APR, um, which isn't very easy to calculate without a spreadsheet. Um, we do actually want to move away from the booking fee model in the future, and there's another idea that we can do there. Um, but I think to get there will require a few steps in the middle, and that is a that proposition takes much more resource to get to. Got it. And looking at the competitor set that you've got, is the the discovery platform that you will have uh, as a, sort of like a price comparison site or app like Skyscanner? Yes and no. So uh, Skyscanner does two things. So they pull in the airline's own inventory, but they're also pulling in inventory from travel agents. So third-party booking. We wouldn't have the third-party booking element. We would purely just be giving you what is in the airline's inventory. So in that regard, we're not necessarily like a price comparison site. Do you worry that if really you're going after a price conscious customer because they can't afford to pay for their flight there and then, that if they don't think they're going to get the best price from you, even though they can split the payment, do you think that is a barrier for them? We're actually finding that people are less price sensitive. And that's that's been an interesting bit of feedback. Uh, people have been more likely to take 
flights that they otherwise would have avoided. Um, so one of our trips was a group trip to Berlin. And the more expensive flight was the flight that flew back in the evening. And people just said, well, I'd rather take that <laughs> than have to wake up early in the morning. But if I was paying this out of pocket, I would have just taken the morning flight. So we're finding that people are actually coming back as, as less price sensitive when they have that option of splitting the payments up into monthly payments. Can I okay. um, ask a bit about team? So you yeah. mentioned before that you didn't have any travel or finance experience. Yeah. Um, just digging into the team a bit, uh, who's doing the technical side um, of the build-outs? So Neil Chalk is our technical co-founder, and he's just joined the team only a few months ago after our uh, last technical co-founder had to resign. Is he full-time? He is full-time, yes. Um, and he's actually got a background in building platforms for airlines for the last 15 years. And it was a really unique find because it is, very, it is a very, very difficult space to find a developer. And how are you paying him? He's paid in shares at the moment. So we're all, we're all um, doing sweat equity at the moment. Okay. And who else has experience in, in travel and or tech amongst the team? In tech, Neil's the only one at the moment. We have a product manager uh, as an intern, uh, but he's not part of the founding team. Uh, we are actually working with a third party to do most of our app build out for the next stage. And that is a team that does have uh, significant experience in travel tech development. They're actually based in Bristol. Then I've got a call with them actually after this. <laughs> Great. Do you have a, you know, a, 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 say a three year view on just this revenue? So the 10 to 15% booking fee, not the extra stuff you're looking yeah. at. Have you, have you got a view, let's say, over the next three years of what that booking fee revenue and profit is going to look like? Yeah. Uh, so I know that our over three years, our total turnover uh, would be 18 million. And that is based on some actually very low growth in the start. So the first year, we're only actually trying to tackle about a thousand bookings and then uh, growing, I believe, 25% in the year following and uh, slightly less in the third year. We've got a, a set about five different demographics that we're trying to target. So some of them like groups are actually more profitable. Some of them like families are maybe less profitable, but we've sort of structured how we how we want those groups to grow. And then I think break even happens in about month 10, actually. If I've done my maths correctly, which is rare, I'll be honest. Um, <laughs> I'm in the same so you're world. saying 18 million revenue, which is around 240,000 bookings. If you're saying, let's just say an average fee you'll get is 75 quid per booking. Yeah, so when we get into the actual spreadsheets, um, they are... The numbers are slightly different. So 750 is just a number that we sort of use as a to kind of make things An less, less complex. Yeah. So we've worked out who we think our five main audiences would be. So roughly that is expats, international students. Wanderlust is a sort of general catch-all term for uh, Gen Z millennials, uh, groups, families, and music and sport tourists. So we've worked out what we expect each of these different groups to be paying when they travel. So expats would probably be traveling about once a year, um, millennials probably two, three times a year, and people will move through different segments 
based on their usage. So certain tickets you'll find are more expensive and certain tickets are, are, are less expensive, especially on the group ticket front. People will probably be doing shorter haul trips, but there will just be simply more people in those groups. Yeah. And Tom, do you have a last question for Jamal? Um, no, I'm, I'm good, actually. Thank you. You're good. Perfect. So thank you very much for that. Really enjoyed speaking to you, Jamal. Likewise. Uh, Tom, Tom and I will now leave the pitch studio and have a little summary amongst ourselves. But thank you very much for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Jamal. So, Tom, we're outside the pitch studio now just to have a quick summary amongst ourselves. Um, I'll kick it off. I think for me, the what really stood out was, you know, is there, and I think you really drilled him on it, is, you know, is there a real need for this product to have spent pretty much two years uh, on it, you know, cash or no cash, and get to, you know, a 600 waiting list um, and still not be able to book a ticket? Um, and I think... You know, he was saying there were 16 people that were happy to pay more to get the 10 to 15 percent. You know, that's not really scrutiny and really understanding if there is a real need for this product. And that would seriously concern me. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, I'd love to have drilled him more. For me, there are a few kind of key touch points that I like to look at if I was thinking about putting money into a company. Uh, so vision is one, traction is another, the team is another, um, how they're going to make money, who their customers are, the, the product, and then just the sector itself. Um, I've got a few thoughts on each of those on the ba- basis of what Jamal said, if, if that helps. Yeah, great. Jump into it. So uh, firstly, with the vision, you know, I'm, I'm unclear about what the company is actually going to make. So even at the end of the pitch, I wasn't convinced about whether this was spreading payments or whether it was an all-singing, dancing booking system for a single person, whether it was a concierge service for a group of travelers. And I think that that speaks to the fact that Jamal doesn't know what the hair on fire problem is and also hasn't segmented his audience such that he is building as Paul Graham famously says, something a small number of people want a lot. I just didn't get, I got a sense that there was a a kind of smoothie of different ideas that had been blended together, uh, which resulted in it, it what sounds like a huge technical build, which will result in essentially a number of things that currently very well-funded companies like Kayak and Skyscanner and Google Flights and so on do very well. So for me, I didn't know who his customer was. I didn't know what their problem was. And do you think in this, do you think it would have been wise to almost link it to the likes of Klarna, who have obviously are doing that in retail, uh, you know, splitting payments and bringing that vision to travel and, and simplifying it as we're trying to book, do the Klarna yeah. for travel? Perhaps. Potentially. Perhaps. But I mean, you know, the, the, the story of missing his brother's wedding as best man just didn't make any sense to me you know that was not a lightning bolt moment if uh, he could have afforded it but just didn't manage to split the payments over a few months so even there the kind of fundamental eureka moment didn't result in spelling out the product that he then explained so for me that was that was very difficult to get behind 
And what other thoughts did you have? I was thinking, um, as you say, to undertake you know, such a big project, perhaps the team might be lacking. Uh, you know, I know that's very important from, for me when I look at a deck as are the right people in the founding team to be able to actually execute an idea. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, he said it himself, he doesn't have travel or financial expertise. And uh, there's a very new technical person I'd be interested in digging in there. But to me, it was a completely misfit team for the type of product they're going up against. You know, again, I didn't get a huge insight into their backgrounds. I could be wrong, but I'd want somebody who understands the problem almost better than anyone else. Uh, And I didn't get that sense at all from Jamal. For me, particularly with the travel industry, there's so many pieces like Atoll bonding for groups. The integrations are hugely difficult. Uh, Even very well-funded travel agencies don't have access to half of the promises that he was suggesting that he could fulfill. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point to focus on, on on the the blur, shall we say, of vision and realism. You know, I think it's great to have vision of disrupting the whole travel market. But as you say, that is an absolute monster. And you're taking on huge brands to to be able to do that. Um, And actually just focusing on solving one real problem within the travel industry. And I think, to be honest, the travel industry could do with a shakeup, especially when you're looking at Gen Z consumers. And I wonder if they've sort of lost that focus on on actually, yeah, what is that problem they're trying to solve for that customer? Yeah, exactly. I think that you want to start off very narrow if you can. Uh, and we had the problem here that was hugely vision oriented and lacking in specifics. So um, it felt like there was a lot of dreaming going along. But I didn't get the sense that that was being thought about critically behind the scenes such that, you know, there was this hodgepodge of different solutions, which obviously you can tell a story around, which would be nice to have. But to me, they were not underpinned by the fundaments of of deep critical understanding of the different elements that would come to play. So just building a booking system in travel is hugely complicated. You know, different airlines have different codes for different groups, and none of that is currently fed into uh, a centralized technical system as far as I understand it, which is why uh, travel agencies exist to make group bookings. I don't think that there was a comprehensive understanding just of how things work, let alone the ability to rebuild. It takes many, many years in an industry to understand how things work and then many years to rebuild them. And I didn't get a sense of either of those, unfortunately. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think Jamal himself came across very well, very good storyteller, confident. You know, that's what you want in an entrepreneur as well, but it has to be grounded in a realistic understanding of the business that you're taking on. And I think for both of us, that was lacking. And it's the vision is too big a vision to be taken on. Yeah, and I think that's the sense that both of us got here. And if he if he had somehow managed to close the gap between that vision with tens of thousands of customers uh, who were knocking at his door to try and get what he was proposing to build, then perhaps that storytelling would be of advantage and that Um, he would find other team members who could close that gap. But as you said earlier, you know, it's been quite a long time in gestation without that experience. And it hasn't resulted in a clamoring 
uh, for the product. And so, you know, I, I can't get behind the product. I can't get behind the team and I can't get behind the traction so far. Yeah, I think uh, I do agree with you there, unfortunately. So I think work to be done. Um, but it was fantastic to have you alongside me today, Tom. Really great insights, both into travel and, and entrepreneurial thinking. Um, so yeah, really, really enjoyed having you on this episode. So thanks very much. It was great fun. And I really enjoy, you know, hearing from people who are, are building things. So um, you know, always good to be a part of it. And thanks for having me aboard. No problem. Just a few final thoughts from me. Uh, I thought that was a really interesting episode with the clash between a founder having fantastic vision and spotting an industry that probably is ripe for disruption for a different generation, but wondering if the, the substance of the actual product is, is there. Um, and for me as an investor, um, I am so focused on making sure that the problem they're trying to solve is a real problem. Um, and I think you have to spend a lot of time trying to talk yourself out of an idea before you actually commit to an idea. And I'm not 100% sure um, that that came across there. Um, and I think the other point um, to look at is focus. You can have grand visions, but being really focused on what your core product is going to be, what your core revenue lines are going to be from that product and how you're then going to get those revenues. Um, so I think the numbers, you know, around 18 million um, with my maths was to get, you know, nearly a quarter of a million users, which is a big old ask. Those were the, the main points for me. And interestingly, we didn't even get on to valuation in this one. I think when investors sort of get waylaid on, on a pitch, trying to understand the vision um, and trying to understand what the product is and if there is a need for it, um, then that's probably proof enough that this investment isn't right for them. If you want to check out Jamal's product, head over to letswayfair.com and sign up to be one of his uh, subscribers. If you want to check out Tom's travel companies, they are brilliant-ethiopia.com and brilliant-uganda.com. And as ever, you can head over to my own startup playground at horseplay.ventures. And if you're an investor wanting to talk further to Jamal, just drop us a contact on there. And equally, if you're a startup founder hoping to get onto the next series of Pitch Deck, also contact us on there. And if you could share this podcast, that would be greatly appreciated. We're doing this all for free, just trying to get some great information out there to startup founders. Um, so that would be hugely appreciated. And if you could just at least share it with one person today that you think would benefit from this podcast, and I'd massively appreciate it. Thank you.